You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. We're going to get started. So the first question that I'm going to ask is, Andrew, before he was talking to us about uh, the five looks, looking up, looking down, looking back, looking forward, as well as looking here. And looking here is concerned with application. Um, Are there certain things when we are applying the Bible today that is important for us to keep in mind? uh, Because what we're reading is a text that was written a long time ago. So what are some important things to keep in mind when we're applying? Yes, keep in mind that what you're after in the text is not what is said on the surface, but what is said under the surface, theologically. Does that make sense? So what is God telling us about himself, his world, how to live in his world, what he's done in his son, and how does that apply to me, and how will it change me? So application, I think, is very badly done by people from our background. So... Think about what is being said about God, the world, ourselves, other people, the situations we face. How does that apply to me now? How does it arise out of that text? How does it apply to me now? Does that make sense? Not if you think it makes sense. If you don't, come and talk to me later. Okay? If it helps, think about the application I made that if you want to evangelise, you take your non-Christian friends out on a boat and get them to throw you overboard. That's the wrong application. (laughs) Because that is not a theological application, that's a surface application, okay? So that's a way of, this is the right one, mine was the wrong one. So what is God saying in this text to these people at this time and what difference does that make to me in my situation, in my time? What would I do? Um, The next question that I want to ask is, um, over this weekend you've been uh, introducing us to this method of reading the Bible um, is this method of detailed inquiry and examining God's word new? And is it different from how the early church, so 0 to 200 AD, would have read and treated the scriptures? Absolutely not different. So what I've tried to do is I've tried to show you what they are doing when they do it. So remember, this, remember that often quoted saying, If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. That's good biblical theology. God was a creator back here. He's still a creator here. What does that mean for me? It means God can create me anew. Does that make sense? So actually, I think I'm trying to replicate what you see in the New Testament, not what we see in many of our pulpits. The difference between now and then is they knew their Bibles. So they just had to think and all that background information was there, whereas we have to use resources to get it. So they knew their Bibles. So the answer is, if you know your Bible, this is a piece of cake. Yeah. I suspect um, something of what the question was getting at as well is how um, the early church fathers would have interpreted the scriptures. And, um, for example, if you read how um, some early church fathers will read parables, um, they often get a bad rap because it's, uh, they're seen to be allegorising a text and uh, reading it in ways that maybe we wouldn't. Um, there are, in the early church, they're well known, well, we know them for um, examples of exegesis where we wouldn't do it the same, necessarily. Um, but they would probably be the exception rather than the norm. Uh, so, if you think early church, the issues they were dealing with, um, the Trinity, the two natures of Christ, um, if you look at someone like Cyril of Alexandria, uh, he's famous in the uh, Council of Ephesus for dealing with uh, Christological issues, um, but actually 70% of what he wrote would have been exegetical commentaries. So, even though we think about the early church as largely dealing with doctrine and theology, and where you do see um, commentaries now refer back to the early church fathers uh, and having dodgy exegesis in this part or that part of the Bible. Um, there are parts where we p- would probably say that I think we probably understand a little bit better than they do, but actually, if you look at their example in the first few centuries of the church, most of what they devoted themselves to was understanding the text. So, the sort of stuff mm. that we've been talking about here. 
And one of the things that uh, Andrew and Heather, you were going through with us earlier today uh, was looking at the exegesis and asking ourselves, what, where, when, why, how? I think I got all of them. Um, now, the question is asking, is there the possibility of... Not who. Who? I forgot <laughs> one of them. Um, is there the possibility of us being overly inquisitive and spending too much time on tangents? How can we triage and prioritise the right questions when looking at the text? Yes, there is a possibility of going off on tangents because our brains actually look after, oh, that's interesting, I didn't notice that before, and we fo often follow the red herrings. So the secret is you'll notice that with the who, what, when, where, why, how questions, you ask the question, you don't necessarily answer it immediately. When you start delving deeper, you start to notice the questions that are unimportant. So one of the questions that is unimportant in Jonah is who wrote it? But there are books written on who wrote it. The other question is, when was this book written? There are books written on when it was written, but does the who wrote it and the when it was written make a difference to what it says? No. So the tangents, there is a danger of going off on tangents. It's not that they're bad, but you'll probably never come to a conclusion. And yeah, don't waste your time doing it if you're a bit strapped for time, because there's so much gold there. Why mind the dross? These, these are not things clearly God thought were crucial for us. Anyone want to add? Well, I think that's entirely correct. There's not, there must, there's not much more to add than that. I'm just thinking, one question that would be helpful to ask for course, that can help you discern um, what is the priority of the text, um, and I get uh, the trainees who do this, don't just ask yourself, what is the text saying? So you know in your VLT studies, we'll ask you, in 10 words or fewer, summarise what 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 to 7 is saying, and then you've got to 20 kind of... words or fewer in our BLT. Okay. St. Helens, yeah, with William Taylor at St. Helens, he straps them for seven words, and it's just ridiculous anyway. So you end up having like semicolons and other things like that. But you realise, if you only ask the question, what is this text saying, you're, you're reducing meaning to a proposition, an idea. You need to also ask, what is this text doing? What's it seeking to achieve? Why has this author written this text? And actually, when you understand the purpose of a text and what it's seeking to achieve, it helps you then understand the priority of what is actually being written. Uh, so often, uh, I listened in on a Bible study once at, at another place before church was planted, um, and the, the Bible study leader said, what's the big idea of the passage? And someone said it in 20 words or fewer or something like that, and he said, wonderful, let's pray. And I thought, oh, you're only halfway done. Because unless you can understand the point or the thrust of the text, you will actually have, you, you potentially will misuse the meaning of the text. And so if you want to understand what the priorities are in it, um, ask yourself, why has this text been written? Uh, and, send, and then that'll help you see the shape and the contours of what has been written in terms of priority and importance. Now, one of the big things that you've been going through with us, especially in that last section, Andrew, uh, was biblical theology. And that's one of the disciplines that we look at, uh, but there's also another one called systematic theology. Would you be able to reiterate for us the difference between systematic theology and biblical theology? Uh, yes. The biblical theology is, what does this text tell me about God, the world, myself, other people, the situations that we face, and so on, right? So it tells you theologically about some things, okay? But it doesn't attempt to systematize them. It, it, it's like walking through a garden that has been not the botanic gardens. Does that make sense? Botanic gardens, everything's nicely... Systematized. Systematized, <laughs> yeah. Okay, and someone thought, yeah, we need all the orchids over here, we need all the flowers over here and so on. Whereas biblical theology looks at things as they appear, things about God, the world, ourselves, other people, the situations we face, as they appear, where they appear, and then says, does this appear elsewhere in Scripture as well? And what difference does Jesus make? 
that's, um, if I can put it this way, that's a little more random than systematising everything. It's like walking You through have to do the first before you can do the second. It's like walking through the bush and noticing the beauty as it comes or working, walking through the botanic gardens and noticing the orchestration of the beauty. And there's value in both. One tells you where something thrives and how it thrives and how it survives. But in the botanic gardens, you see it kind of collapsed together in the whole context and so you can understand it more deeply. In a, but it's a very specific thing. You don't see that it lives alongside 27 other things and that it only occurs every three kilometres instead of every three centimetres. Does that make sense? So you get to understand different things in different locations. Yep, biblical theology will use categories internal to the Bible. Uh, so the primary ca categories that you will uh, deal with in biblical theology are what you find within the text of the scriptures. And the scope of what you'll incorporate within that, so if you're looking at all your data and what's included in your data set, it'll be what's within the Bible. Right? So it's more restricted in that sense and more focused. Systematic theology broadens out. Uh, it takes into account a broader scope and field of data. It includes culture, uh, philosophy, historical theology, what the, what the church has thought about this particular issue. Uh, so it will include a much broader set of things within it. Uh, so, for example, your doctrine of the Trinity uh, is largely systematic category uh, because you're synthesizing a large body of data, not just from within the scriptures, but you're also looking at how the early church and subsequent generations of Christians have understood the Trinity. But importantly, the big difference between systematics and biblical theology is in the word system. And I know by repeating the word system doesn't really help. So think about it like this. It's about, it's about connections. It's about connections about how one doctrine in the scriptures will have an impact on another. So, if you've done strand three sort of stuff at NTE or anything equivalent like that, it kind of gets you halfway there. That's kind of topical theology. What it does is it takes all the verses about a particular thing, chucks it into a meat churn and pops something out at the end. That's halfway there. Systematic theology will ask, not just what does the Bible say about the resurrection, but how does the resurrection link to the humanity of Jesus? What difference does it make that those two big ideas are connected to one another? What, what is the, how, what's the connection of the resurrection to um, not just the doctrine of humanity, but to the death of Christ? And how are they related? Some people will say that the centre of the gospel is in the resurrection. Other people will say the centre of the, uh, the, the centre of the gospel is in the atoning death of Christ. How do you resolve the relationship between those two core doctrines? That's really what systematics gets to. And if that's the case, the big thing that you want in systematics is one word, is coherence. Because it doesn't make sense. They're like tripwires in your doctrine. So you might have this experience where you're talking to someone and they say something and you, something in you goes, that just sounds off. But I don't know why and I can't tell you where in the Bible I'd go. But it's, set, it's like a boundary marker that your foot crosses it. You go, oh, okay, it's pulling at something in another doctrinal area. And so systematics does a lot of that boundary writing work. It's like a web where you pull on one part of the web and the whole web then feels the shock of that. And I think that's a... Um, I, I love it. I think it's important. Yeah, you should think about it. He's uh, a systematician. Uh, and, and this is the important thing. You need both disciplines to talk to each other because if you get all philo philosophical and, like, you know, but this idea... If you like boxes and lines, you'll love systematics, right? But if you get so obsessed with boxes and lines and you forget the Bible that's in them you will prioritise logic over everything else. And then you won't be a good Old Testament reader because the Old Testament often deals with categories that it's just a bit fuzzier. That irks me, but I have to get used to it. Uh, He's a systematician. But then you get, and then you get um, Old Testament people uh, where they're quite okay living with kind of tension. So one of the classic examples, sorry, I'm going on about this, but one of the classic examples is if you compare um, 1 Kings and Chronicles, you get a, or 2 Kings and Chronicles, you get um, the comparison of um, God um, prompted David to take a census. And then in the, uh, in the corresponding text, it says Satan was the one who did that. A systematician will go, what's the relationship between God and Satan in relation to David? 
And how do you see chain of causation working there? I remember asking Andrew, and I think your response to me was something like, now you can tell me what, if this is right, but I think I asked you a few years ago, and he said, oh, well, you know, uh, Old Testament Israelites, they, they just were concerned with those sorts of questions. It's, it's Hebraic. And I'm like, what does that mean? It is Hebraic. <laughs> he thinks like a Greek. We think like Hebrews. So, so I know I, you think I, I'm Greek, but... <laughs> I would fine-tune what Adam said just a little bit. I think the best systematic theologians... And I know of one who's very good. The best systematic theologians have done their biblical theology first. So they understand how the Bible speaks in its own right, and then they learn how to systematize it. So what I find is most difficult is the person who then, and I think this is most pe many people, if not most, that do biblical theology, is they've done their systematics before they've done their biblical theology. And so that the text largely is forced through a systematic grid. So biblical theology, exegesis first, looking at the text, this text in this place, and then just doing it all the way through the Bible, then forming a biblical theology, and then I think you're ready to do systematics. I am not ready. Um, That's why that it's good I, to I'm have, not naturally, have both. I'm, <laughs> I'm not naturally good at that. I, I can do it, actually. But he is. But, he's, he's a good systematician, he's so, a good biblical But I think the best, the best systematic theologians I know are those who have done their biblical theology and exegesis. Does if, that make sense? If you listen to their sermons, you can hear it. Yeah, you can hear it. Yeah, I'm like, oh, there's a word. Let me talk to you about the resurrection for the yeah. next 15 minutes. Anyway. We often sit there and go, Adam, you're being a systematician at this point. Which is good, right? Is good. Yeah. What you want to do, what, here's what you want to do. Here's where the payoff is. All this sounds really nerdy, right? Let me tell you why it matters, right? Um, someone said whether you're minded one way or the other can be a function of personality or the way that you're wired. Hmm. And, and so some of you will default towards being the more systematics type. You'll think you like boxes and categories and things to fit. And you're like, that doesn't make logical sense. And you said that last week, and that doesn't make sense with that. And some of you are going to do much more of the, no, but what does that word mean? Right? And the risk is that we will retreat to our comfort zones hmm. and only ever deal with the categories that we enjoy dealing with. So if you're like me, you need to work hard at the text and go, okay, um, I will tell you that there are doctrines that I hold to largely for systematic reasons, hmm. meaning because it's coherent and works with the rest of my system. But I will tell you as well that I have some exegetical problems with my own position on some of them. And if you're the other side, you're going to go, but all the texts say this. I'm going to say, but you're incoherent. And you, didn't, you actually need to give me an answer here. So think about the way that you are and then push against that to balance yourself out and around yourself out to be a little bit more coherent. Yeah, yes. they're, they're both important. They're both so, important. So last year, you had a man speaking who I think is a brilliant systematic theologian, but he's also a, a good biblical theologian. So, so he actually manages to do both together. But so Peter asked me a question the other day, uh, no, a couple of months ago, about a particular issue. And he, he and I were slightly different views on it. So we, we booked a time so that we could talk together. And that's the best way to do both is for the systematic and the biblical theologians to talk to each other and to take each other into account. I think we've answered the question to death. Yes. <laughs> Press on. I, lo I loved that. <laughs> what I got out of that is, not only do you need to know your MTBI and your Enneagram, you also need to know whether you're a biblical or a systematic person. <laughs> so figure that one out. That's the next personality test. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Um, so one of the things that we were talking about just before was biblical theology. Yeah. And Andrew, earlier you mentioned that biblical theology is not biblical Christology. Yes. So this is the question. Um, Andrew, you mentioned not to read the New Testament into the Old Testament, but let it have its own distinctive voice. Yeah. Don't just read Jesus into the Old Testament. Can you explain this? Yes, I hear it all the time. That is, I hear people preaching on an Old Testament text and it actually ends up being a New Testament sermon. Now, 
And I feel as though the New Testament element has been imposed upon the text rather than growing out of the text. That's why I've repeated one particular verse to you a number of times. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Can you hear the interaction between the two Testaments there? It's quite profound. The, the person who says this, the apostle, has seen what was meant in the New Testament and he says, oh, if you're in Christ, then that Old Testament thing has been done in you in the same way. God has made a new creation in you and that comes through his son. So that's profound, both systematic and biblical the theology. Does that make sense? And I think you need to do it. Um, but we need to work out how to do it well. And I think people sort of opt on one or the other. And I would encourage you not to do that. So when you've done good biblical theology, work out how, it's, how it can be systematized as well in a way that can grasp the whole more. And I think um, uh, we've spoken about this at length before that uh, the way that you know that often people read Christ into the Old Testament is not even what happens is not even just reading Christ into the Old Testament, it's reading, a partic it's reading a particular articulation of the atonement into the Old Testament. Correct, yeah. So you know it, because you've heard it. Um, I hope you don't hear it here too often, but, um, or at all, but um, it's an Old Testament text where at the very end, everything sounds like this, and therefore Jesus died on the cross on your behalf as your substitute to bear the wrath of God so that you might be reconciled with him. It's a wonderful truth, but it's not actually the fulfilment of every single Old Testament text. It may be. So if you're preaching Le Leviticus 16, it better be, right? Because that's the Day of Atonement uh, in Leviticus. If you're not getting there, something's you've kind of got it wrong, right? But if you're getting that from like Song of Songs, hmm. or if you're getting that even from Genesis 1, I'm like, oh, okay. That's tough, right? Like, and, and actually, when you look at your New Testament, the framing of the gospel has its core in the atoning death of Christ, but actually is framed with the phrase, Jesus is Lord. And that's a quite expansive view of the gospel, which includes within a creation theology, wisdom, uh, redemptive, redemptive theology. So you, you want to trace where the text is going. Um, and, and follow that push rather than go, this is where I've got to end up, let me find my way to get there. But yeah. you've predetermined your outcome, which means you've predetermined the meaning of the passage. Even though it's a good meaning, it's not its meaning. Yeah. As a little exercise, if you wanted to do it, wouldn't take you long. Read the book of Revelation. It is not a systematic theology. It bounces off the richness of the Old Testament to explain what God is doing in this particular time, at this particular location, and so on. And so it's very rich in biblical theology, but it's beginning to systematize, but actually it's not a systematic theology. It's not like you read any systematic theology and Revelation doesn't look like that. It looks like something else. It looks more like the Old Testament than it does some sort of system. Yeah. I was, I was in a meeting uh, two years ago and someone was leading the devotions and I think they were looking at uh, the Abel narrative in, in Genesis 4 and they said, okay, let's go to Hebrews 11, uh, which is where Abel is mentioned. Hmm. Um, uh, the blood of Abel cries out. Uh, so Hebrews 11 or 12, uh, 12. Um, and I said, I'm not sure that Genesis 4 necessarily points you no, right. to Hebrews 12, even though Hebrews 12 mentions Genesis 4. Why? Because the author of Genesis has a particular point in what, what he's saying, right? And the author of Hebrews has a particular point in what he's picking up in Genesis 4. Yeah. So I said, why do, you, why do you go to Hebrews 12? Just because Abel's also mentioned there. And I forget what this person told me, who's very significant Bible teacher. He said, it's safer. Sorry, it's safer. He said, safer. it's safer. Yeah. And I, I understood what he meant in that moment, 
But I'm like, you're, you're, what you've done is, you've done a word search on the Old Testament thing in the New Testament, found out where it lands, and shove it back on it. And I'm like, that's not, just because the New Testament picks up on an Old Testament text, doesn't mean that the New Testament determines the meaning of the Old Testament text. So yeah, the equivalent... That's right, or an, another way of putting it, sorry, Heath, mm. another way of putting it is, that may be a right trajectory from the Old Testament, but it may not be the only one or even the best one. So the equivalent illustration would be, Andrew is my husband. That's a piece of information, and it's, it's true, but it's not Andrew. That is not the 100%. If you want to get to know Andrew, you need to know more than Andrew is Heather's husband. Do you get what I mean? So the, the fact that the, the blood of Abel cries out is like, Andrew is my husband. It's, it's a, a true statement. It's a true statement, but it's not the whole story. Hmm. So those of you who know Andrew know that he's a bigger being than just my husband. No, he's not a big being at all. No. <laughs> there's more, there's more um, sides to him than just being my husband. He's not like my trophy boy. Trophy boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you poor thing. I know. <laughs> Although it's very important for me that he's my husband, but, you know, that's not him 100%. All right, so we've talked a little bit about the more big picture thing of, uh, side of things as well as the big beings. Um, now what we're going to do is we're going to look a little bit more at the details um, of how we interpret and read the Bible. And this is the first one. How would you prove an intertextual link and work out its relevance? And maybe you can explain what an intertextual link is. For example, it looks like Jonah 1 has many similarities with Jesus silencing the storm. Yeah. It's a very good question that you're asking, and, it, and it's at the heart of what I was trying to get through to you. The way to link it is um, not on the surface, but under the surface. So let me explain. So you're working out what this text here is saying theologically, and I'm going to repeat what I've said before, what does it tell me about God, the world, myself, other people, the situations I face, and so on and so forth, right? The stuff of theology. And how does that link with, either in either direction, this other thing, this other text? How do they fit together? And what, what is it that theologically binds them together? That way, I think you'll... you'll will stop you doing bad systematics and bad biblical theology. So you're thinking theologically about the links, not on the surface. Okay? You think underneath. What's going on? What is God telling us through this, through this writer at this point about himself, the world, and so on and so forth? So one way of thinking about it is when we look at Jonah 1 and we see God hurling storms around, we understand his... Him as sovereign creator. When we look at Jesus stilling the storm, we understand he is God. Can you, can you see that there is a link, but the link is not the storm. The link is the theological under, sub-message, sub whatever you want to call it, mm. that, that kind of like underlie. And too often we go, storm, storm, must be linked. No. Who did what in the storm and what does that say about them? The storm, God throwing the storm on the boat to stop Jonah from running away, says God is sovereign, he controls, he's, he's the, the God of heaven who made the dry land and the sea. Jesus throwing the storm says, this is God, and not throwing the storm, controlling the storm, says this is God. The same one that was acting in Jonah. So in other words, what you're doing is you're not reading the New Testament back into the Old, you're reading the New Testament through everything we know from the Old. Make sense? And it's through the theological underplay rather than just through Oh, storm. 
I saw that word somewhere else. The, the most important thing to avoid is that Jesus becomes a pastiche that is just, you know, something that is just put on the end of your sermons no matter what you do and that might have very little link at all with the text you've been speaking about. Don't do it. And there's lots of it around. And it looks just, it looks like something pasted at the end on top of the sermon. Uh, the second question uh, that looks more into the details of interpreting the Bible is about chiasms. So this person has said they, they make sense when I see a preformed one, like maybe that one of uh, Jonah 1 that we had on the slides before, but I find it hard to create a chiasm myself, even after identifying repetitive words. Mm. Are there any tips for finding chiasms? Are there any tips? Tips. tips. Don't overplay yes. it. <laughs> there are fewer in, in Scripture than theological students would want to believe. <laughs> yeah. um, if it looks imposed upon the text at the end, it probably is, and avoid it. Right? You, that is, um, if you've had to really stretch really hard to get this and find it, uh, just leave it alone. <laughs> But, so that's my first tip. Second tip is, again, the way that, think not on the surface, but under the surface. What's happening theologically? What is being said? And are the two things addressing the same thing? Then that's, that's ripe for link, right? Theological links, biblical theology. And in the end, it will lead you in the right way into systematic theology and not lead you down multiple garden paths. I think also it helps to have the original language. So like we mentioned, the, whole, the word hurled and fear don't always, in every translation, each word is not translated exactly the same, so you'll miss the chiasm. So if you're using the CSB, you'll miss that Jonah says he fears God because it says, I worship God. There's nothing wrong with that translation, but it misses that pattern of repetitions. If you're reading the ESV, you'll pick it up. Other translations may or may not pick it up. If you're reading the Hebrew, you'll notice. Okay? So to a certain extent, even if you find a chiasm, it may be an interpreter's translation chiasm. So be cautious about claiming chiasms. When we, um, we've had people create chiasms out of the most amazing things in theological students see them everywhere um, you know and sometimes they're a bit dodgy but when you see them you see them I mean classic one is in Mark when Jesus goes into the temple on the way in he sees a fig tree and he curses it he goes in he overthrows the temple on the way out, he sees that the fig tree has shriveled and died. That's a chiasm. Pretty obvious. You've got a fig tree, a temple, a fig tree. Okay? So then you've got to work out, well, what's the meaning of all of this? You see what I mean? So sometimes they're really obvious. Um, that one, I think, is reasonably obvious, but it depends on your translation as to whether you notice it. Yeah, I met someone who said to me, uh, who wrote his PhD on all of uh, Hebrews being one big chiasm. <laughs> I was like, nice try, mate. But uh, <laughs> like, that was six years of his life. But, uh, uh, but if you want to look at it, look, look at the ends and look at the middle, right? The problem about getting a chiasm wrong is that with a chiasm, the, the center point often is the most, is crucial point. And if you misidentify it, you will pick the wrong center point and then it'll reshape your entire reading of absolutely everything. So just be slow to do it. Uh, and if you think you've found it, just check it with... You, prob you probably haven't. And, and then check it with someone. So There's, no, there's um, no prizes for finding chiasms, but it is interesting if you think you've found one. And you'll notice we didn't find it until we looked at the repetitions. And you'll notice also that if you were using the CSB, you probably wouldn't have noticed that. And sometimes it'll be the opposite for the ESV. So I'm not saying the ESV is right every time. You know, sometimes I, I read the ESV and I think we shouldn't be reading this in this translation. Sometimes the CSV, no, this is no good. 
you know, sometimes the NIV gets it right. So you, you never know. But so when, if you only know English, don't stress over chiasms. No, and <laughs> so just forget the last ten minutes. <laughs> but but you can still can find them. Like we found one today. Yeah, avoid avoid thinking that the whole chiastic stuff is like a lolly shop that you just rush into to buy all the lollies. Yeah. Uh, it's just not. It's not like that. You need to have evidence that it's there, and the but, most concrete evidence is. Word, repet or word or idea, but preferably word repetition. That, that's the way to tie it down the best. Uh, now, this next question is a bit of a different one, and it's one that I've often wondered myself. This is a very important question. Um, was Jonah truly swallowed by the great fish and survived? And I'm just going to add on to that as well. Um, but Sorry, also, say that again. Uh, was was Jonah truly swallowed by the great fish and survived? Oh, oh yeah, okay. And also to add on to that as well, uh, was there really a plant that just sprung up overnight and a worm that ate the whole thing? So, there you go. Well, I've had worms eat my mint overnight, so I think the worm could do their job overnight. Um, the plant that sprung up seems miraculous to me. But... Uh, The first one was about the fish. the fish. Yeah, look, when you read the commentaries, they all tell of these stories that such things do happen. One happened last year. A whale ate a man and then spat him out, and he's got sort of scars on his face from the whale. He was only there for, like, a few minutes. So there are these but stories, you see. There are stories. There are stories. And so... Um, I'm hesitant to throw them out, um, especially since some of them are occurring, um, have occurred recently or been recorded or been looked at fairly recently. So I'm not too worried about it actually, it doesn't really worry me, I don't get too concerned. <laughs> um, but if you're, you are particularly worried, there is lots of literature, let me tell you. Yeah, I mean, I spoke on Jonah at um, a women's conference in Brisbane two weeks ago, three weeks ago. I can't remember how long ago. It's all a blur. Um, and part of it, I actually showed a video of this man being interviewed who last year got swallowed by a whale. So just to show that, yes, it is possible. It doesn't mean it's true, but it is possible. And he was pretty traumatised. Um, the, the as, as you would be, I guess. The reason, the reason I showed the video is his response is almost word for word, Jonah 2. So when you listen to his interview, he goes, my God, I'm going to die. You read Jonah 2 and then you parallel this guy's response to being swallowed by a whale. He said Jonah 2 in modern language. And then he was vomited out. So I thought this is really interesting because it gives us insight into the reality of what it feels like to think you're about to die by hearing a man talk about it. Anyway, that's just why I showed the video. <laughs> so, and one thing, I suspect one question behind the question is, um, how literally slash literalistically do you read parts of the Bible, hmm. right? And there is a difference between literally versus literalistically. So I, I'm a literal Bible reader, but I'm not a literalistic Bible reader. Uh, and, and you can tell the difference. Let me explain the difference between that, right? Um, I'm a literal Bible reader in that I believe the Bible for what it says and what it claims to say, right? That is, I read it literally on its own terms. I'm not a literalistic Bible reader in that I do not read the Bible um, as if everything were written as was intended to communicate empirical, objective, um, uh, historical fact. So, for example, uh, let, let's run with Song of Songs, for example. I've been reading it with someone recently. Um, that's perfectly okay. You should do that. Uh, um, it's not intended to be an historical narrative, right? Um, maybe there was a Shulamite woman, right? I suspect there was, right? 
Maybe there were the Bollywood-like women behind her dancing in the... You know, but it's not intended to communicate that in the book, right? And so if you're reading something that's historical and that's intended to be read literally and historically, then you read it historically. But if something is written allegorically, if something is written as a parable, if something is uh, written... Um, I'm going to use this term, but please don't be distracted by it, though you will be, as a myth, small m, but in that it is not intended to be read as an historical event, then you don't read it as an historical event. Now, of course, that gives rise to the most important question. What is this text intending to propose itself to be? Right? Is what I am reading suggesting, read me as history, or read me as allegory parable and that's the that often is actually the deeper question right so you need to understand as far as i can i can tell something like jonah seems to be written as history then you look at how jesus speaks of jonah and refers to him with some sense of direct historical reference so on jonah's terms and on the bible's terms i would read that as um uh some form of history this is the big question when you're dealing with genesis 1 do you read that as history or do you read it as exalted poetry, as it were? Because if you read it one way or the other, you're going to land in different places of what you think about how old the earth is, for example, or what you think about the creation of man or, or other matters like that. So understand the genre of the text and what it ha- how it is inviting you to read it. That's, yeah. Awesome. Uh, in a moment, what we're going to do is we're going to ask a couple of questions on some practical tools and tips to implement the five looks in our lives. Uh, but the first question, uh, before we get there, is something that you mentioned last night, Andrew, was that when we're reading the Bible, when we're uh, doing the five looks, uh, one of the caveats that you made is this is actually a spiritual exercise, not purely an academic one. Sorry, it's a... It's a spiritual exercise, yes. not purely an academic one. Yep. So the question is, how do you see the work of the Holy Spirit contributing as we go through the five looks? Yeah, yeah, it's a very good question. So when I approach any passage, either for my devotional life or for my preaching, I do the same thing. That is, I ask God to be at work, to help me understand the text in its original context, and help me to apply it rightly to the group of people that I'm speaking to. Um, and I, um, I take it that he will answer my prayer, because that's what he wants as well. And so I assume that in my normal working, that is what is happening. And it may happen when at three o'clock in the morning, I think, I know what this passage is about now. And I think, oh, and now I can see how it fits. Um, That's often how it happens with me. Uh, And at that point I think, oh, now I understand it. And then I think, are there any things that are problematic for it? When I think, no, there are not, I think, no, I think that's a winner. The problem is that I see lots of people that I think they've come across this idea and they've thought it's a winner without thinking it through. And that comes into the pulpit. And so, so, so work hard on the text. You're, you're, if there's any indication in your brain that this is going against the text, reject it, start again. So somebody asked the question about chiasms. They are less important than spending time in the text asking for God's guidance. Chiasms are a literary structure that sometimes lead to uncovering the heart. But you'll notice that what we, we found a chiasm and whoopee-doo, it was all about God being sovereign. But actually, the heart of the message was to show Jonah up as a fake and to show the pagan sailors up as believers. And you could get that without the chiasm. So it's that prayerful reflection on the text that matters, not your skill at manoeuvring around words. 
And if in doubt, don't. Yeah. But, but I, also, I also think that... Um, I don't know if you've noticed during today, Andrew says, read the text. Now read the text again. Now read the text again. I mean, I read it out loud twice, and in between that he said, read it again and read it again. So this is not about pray, read, notice. Oh, now I know the answer. This is about pray, read, pray, read, pray, read. Rest, read. Rest, meditate, <laughs> read, pray, rest, meditate. Oh, now I know the answer. Can you see what I mean? And that's why Andrew said it's not linear. It is like this. Oh, whoops, now we've got it. So it's like Archimedes' bath, if anyone's read that children's book. It's working out um, the kind of like displacement of water and stuff. Oh, Eureka, I've got it. Um, and Andrew gets very excited when Eureka, he gets it. So he wakes me up. <laughs> Heather! <laughs> I finally worked this passage out. <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> Tell me in the morning, Andrew. <laughs> All right, we're going to ask some questions uh, to finish up about tools and practical tips uh, in reading the Bible. Uh, this is the first one. Uh, so, Andrew, you mentioned uh, that it's a good idea to use multiple Bible versions to compare. Mm. Which ones would you recommend? Which different translations do you use when you are studying a passage in depth? Hebrew. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I still have my Hebrew, but I generally don't start there. So, uh, Bible versions I use... Uh, I'm, I'm being very open and honest with you. Um, I use the English Standard Version. It's my favourite of the uh, of the literal translations. Um, I like the I like their rationale and choices about the way they've gone. Um, I think the latter translation of the NIV is a good translation. Um, the Christian Standard Bible, I don't know well enough to comment on, but I'm beginning to use it more now, obviously, because it's used at church. Um, uh, I prefer the more word-for-word -word option than the idea-for-idea -idea option. Um, it just saves a lot of work, basically. So, uh, but however, for public, for public um, settings, I think you need to have a version of the Bible that is understandable by ordinary people. So, uh, 10 years ago, when I was at uh, Holy, came into the church at Holy Trinity Doncaster, I had to make a choice. And... Uh, the choice we made was, which I thought was the best at the time, was something that was readable and reasonably accurate, and that was the NIV translation at that time, which was the most recent one. And I thought that was good. So, look, it's horses for courses. Um, if you have original languages, use them. Uh, but I do think a word-for-word -word translation is better on the whole than the other options, although there are some good now, some very good options in that space. It's just often helpful to have two versions. Yeah. Because sometimes you'll just notice that there's a difference and you can pick up on extra richness from two versions. And to a certain extent, any of the versions Andrew mentioned are good. Um, yeah. The ones that we would happily... I think what you also don't want to do, which... I think it's important is not get into value judgments about each one. Yeah, that's right. Uh, because they all serve different purposes, right? Yeah. So let's say if we planted this church in order to reach non-English speaking, simple English mm. migrants, um, I mean, look, most first language English speakers can't even understand the ESV, right? So it sounds like Yoda, um, but it's good to read for technical work. So I use ESV, um, CSB, 
NASB, NRSV for um, sermon work, plus I've got original language and I've got a panel there on my Bible software for in, in Chinese just to try and remind myself I need to improve that. Um, but if you do read a second language, actually, I found it really helpful, hmm. even if it's not Greek or Hebrew, because, some, because those translators will have to make decisions as well. And what you realise is that there are words, like the Hebrew word for to know, for example, has a very broad semantic range. It could mean a number of different things, right? Um, in English, the word to know can mean a lot of different things. The word to know, apparently in German, there's two words for to know. There's a relational knowing and there's an intellectual knowing. So I know Cassie, I will use a relational know, and I know that doctrine, I'll use a different word for the word know. If you read Chinese, you'll know that there are, you'll know that there are about maybe three or four different words for the word to know or to understand. And so actually that's why I find using a double language can be quite helpful just as a comparator to make myself think about when is this no, what is it to be known by God, for example? Is that a cognitive thing or is that a relational thing? Um, so uh, I think use those. Uh, I know a lot of people have a go at the message and the NLT. Um, you know, party freak, you can do it, fine, whatever. But um, the value of it is this. If you're reading a really technical part where... The ESV, NIV, CSV, none of them make sense. Sometimes going to a really dynamic translation can kind of help you go, oh, okay, I can kind of get what it's getting at now in different words. And then when you go back to the more literal translation, it helps you engage with it with a few more tools. Yeah. But I would not recommend using it devotionally they or all, publicly. They all have their values. When, when I used to run ESL classes on reading, reading analytically using Mark's Gospel, um, I used the Good News Bible, which I wouldn't recommend as an in-depth study because it tries to do idea for idea, but it doesn't always get it right. But it's great for evangelism of English second language speakers. So people became Christian using the ESV. So, you know, not the ESV, the GNB, the Good News Bible. So, which is a very basic translation it, it has a vocabulary limit that's why so you can use anything for anything but you've got to think about what your purpose is and choose your bible according to your purpose and so sometimes when i read aloud i will use the niv but when i study i'll use the esv the csv the nasb one of the others and it just bears with, I, I really don't want to do this, but because we're on translations, the footnote is, if you go to Kurong and you go to the Bible translation sec section, the Passion translation, that one I would say don't touch, but the rest of them are okay. So um, if you want to know why, just I can just send you an article. But uh, just because it's on a shelf in Kurong doesn't make it good. So, yeah, surprise, surprise. Uh, uh, and, and then just realise how rich... A heritage we have, because when, when when my father was growing up, there was just one. The that's AV, the, the King James version or the A authorized version. That's all. That's all they had. They, thou. It, it did them okay, but but you see, so we're so rich now with translations that we have to make these choices, but most of them for a previous generation would have been far better than they had. But just to let you know, I became a Christian through the King James <laughs> with all the vows and therefores. <laughs> it's God's word, it can do its work. Yeah. I was a kid and I became a Christian through the AV. Um, this is actually the most upvoted question, uh, but I think it's an important one. Uh, Andrew, before you recommended and uh, you told us that while you're working on a text, something that you do is you download the passage, and then you indent it. Hmm. Could you please explain more on how to indent? Yeah, happy to do that. You tap the tab, tab lever? <laughs> no, what I do is, um, I, maybe, maybe at some point I could, no, I could, yeah, if I had a way of printing out here, I, I could do it. I could I, just I've done out. it on my reading of Jonah, if you want to come and have a look. Yeah, look, what, what I do is, every time I think there is a new... Not idea, but a new break in thought. 
I put an indent in. And when I think that they... So that may mean that I have parallel indents, right? That is the... Anyway, I can show you. I can leave... No, I haven't because I haven't got a way to print it out. But I, I could write it up. No, Heather's got the Jonah stuff. So we could, we, could, we could do that. But basically what it is is saying when the writer moves into a new idea or a new phrase, put an indent in and indent it from the previous. Unless, of course, it looks like it's got a parallel way back, in which case put it, put it back into under there. Does that make sense? But I can easily show... Um, we have. I, I could easily just do what I've done in Jonah, I think, or something like that, and uh, give you a copy and we could just leave them outside church on one Sunday and you could pick them up and just see what I've done. Would that be helpful? I'm very happy to do that. Write myself a note that says, give us an example and I'll give you an example and then someone can photocopy it and leave it around for people to pick up. A lot of it is about phrasing. So you're looking at this phrase... Um, sometimes there'll be another phrase that is dependent on that phrase. So you kind of indent. If anyone wants to look, I've got the Jonah reading. It's a rough indent, but you can get the idea from that. I've just got the whole of Jonah. That's how I prepared for the reading. Yeah. And it does help you to actually start the analysis of the text. So I'll tell you what, if you send me an email, I will... I will produce something and uh, from something I preached on very recently. Maybe Psalm 46. <laughs> Maybe you could print yeah, off do. it tomorrow. Yeah, uh, yeah, anyway, we'll talk about it. Uh, second last question before we finish up, and I think this is a really important one. <laughs> what would you recommend as a Bible reading plan and how would you incorporate the five looks into it? The problem is I do the five looks automatically now. Right? So I, I don't think about it when I'm... So the first half of the question was, how do I... Bible reading plan. Just Bible reading plan. Whatever you do must work well for you. Okay, we so, do different things. So we do different things. I... No, you don't want to know what I do because then you'll think you have to do it. He's a bit OCD. I've been reading the Bible since I was converted and I will often read from five separate passages across all sections, that is, which bring me across five different genres in Scripture. And I might read a chapter a day of that. I've just broken it up myself. Um, OCD. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, but I've been doing, my knowledge of scripture is very good as a result. Um, and I've been, I've been doing that for at least 40 years. Um, and so, am I, you read me a passage of scripture, I could give you a good guess as to, not chapter and verse, but I could give you a good guess as to which book of the Bible it's from. So if you want something that's a bit more life accessible, <laughs> um, I find there are a lot of Bible reading things online that, that do this, that read from different areas. So my recommendation would be that you access one of those. So if you get online and you look for Bible reading programs, so there's some that are like a chronological reading, which will give you some idea of how the Bible fits together. There's also the chain, which looks at three different passages as opposed to five or there's um, you can just one way I've done it in the past is when I'm out and about walking running whatever I listen so I just listened to the Bible being read and then when I'm at home I read maybe one or two chapters from old and new by listening to the Bible being read when I'm out and about I get big picture of the Bible, by reading one or two chapters, I'm a little bit more focused. 
The other thing I've done is sometimes I've just said, I'm going to really focus in. So I spend a whole week just looking at a chapter or two and doing that meditation on it. So you could do that like the whole week on Jonah or something like that. So rather than try and read a chapter, you can just spend a week meditating. Um, the one thing that I would recommend, if I do nothing else in a day, I read a psalm a day. I think the Psalms are such brilliant fodder for our Christian lives. And sometime, and God will meet me some, quite often where I am in life with the Psalm that I'm reading. And it might express my grief. It may express my praise of God. It may express my thanksgiving. So I try and read a Psalm a day at least. But I've actually got about five sections of the Bible that I read a chapter of every day. As you move down to the dum-dum end of the panel, uh, I can tell you what I do. Um, I'm very bad at Bible reading plans. Like, I have tried and tried and tried. I just feel racked with guilt, you know. By the time you get to March, you're probably around somewhere in the wilderness where all Bible reading plans go to die. Uh, and then, you know, and then, and then you make it up. You have that. You get to the end of the month and you think, oh, I can do this. And you've got a spare Sunday afternoon. And you sit down and you plough through more pages than you've ever read before. And then you get to the genealogy and you're like, hmm, that counts. Yeah, that counts. Okay. And then just next page. Uh, for me, uh, and then I remember telling Peter Adam this and he goes, yeah, don't worry, you're, you're forgiven, right? Like, uh, and, and even, even Don Carson said he's not good at Bible reading plans and he wrote one. Um, well, I'll tell you what I do. Um, I, I, in the evenings, I, I read a psalm. Um, but in the mornings, what I do is uh, I deep dive into a book of the Bible and I sit in that book of the Bible for a very, very, very long time. Meaning, um, I'm not a good multitasker. If I read five texts in different parts, I'll come back the next day and go, huh? Well, I'll just totally forget what happened yesterday. Uh, I, I just can't keep up with my brain in that many places. But I, I spent... I do read other things other than the one book, but I had choose each year a book that I'll get to know very well. So I had my five years in Hebrews, which by now you can ask me where most things are and I can give you sort of where it's at within the 13-chapter range. Uh, and so that's chapter 14. It's like, there isn't a chapter 14. Um, or, or then, I, I, because I think I read uh, Isaiah through three times back to back over a year. Uh, and the first time I read it through, no commentary, by myself, General, and if you don't understand something, don't worry, just keep moving, right? Just keep moving on your first reading and get it done. Get a flavor of it, and you've got a vibe of the text, and you've got to the end of like 66, no idea, right? Then start again and go slower. And then I slow down the speed. Then I use um, Kirk Paston's commentary to, to break up my section. So he goes, 1 to 12, aha, okay, 1 to 12. I'm just going to focus on 1 to 12 and go, oh, okay, I can see things more clearly now. So Look, I am trusting the sovereignty of God that I'm not going to depart from this world anytime soon. Uh, but on that basis, that I can take my time. So um, I found it healthier for my heart just going deeper because I have goldfish memory and I forget very quickly. So if that works for you, then feel free. Just a, just a word on that. I found that when I was pregnant and breastfeeding, well, when you give birth, the placenta reaches into your brain and pulls it out. And suddenly you are brainless. And I found it really hard to read my Bible at that point. And so I would actually meditate for a whole week on one chapter during that period. I'd read it out loud. I'd think about it. By the end of the week, I understood it. So different stages in your life. I know you guys are never going to get pregnant and have the placenta rip your brain out. But... You, you'll go under, undergo stress of other kinds. I was just thinking that you in that condition is me day to day, right? Yeah. Like, I'm just kind of like, my brain still can't keep up in that optimal condition, so... So, so basically, you need to recognise that, that in various stages of life, you'll need to do different things. And the important thing is to read it. Um, because what happens is when you stop reading it, it's hard to restart. So just keep reading it. Because God can use anything. He can use a dead brain to actually rediscover richness in Scripture if you spend long enough on it. 
so just read it. And Bible reading plans, when they say it's a year, I, get, I take three years because I'm a bit like Adam. I mean, like I said, OCD, semi-OCD, clearly not at all. <laughs> just be who you are, you know, like, but keep reading it. Last question, one minute each. What would you like to leave us with today? Uh, we'll start at Adam, then we'll go to Heather, then we'll finish off with Andrew. Uh, <laughs> go, Adam. <laughs> one minute, time me. Um, what would... God, really? Um, Ten words or less. <laughs> yes, that's right. We spend most of our time focusing on how to read your Bible. That's true and good and right. But never forget, looks one and five, uh, just as if not more important. Because you look up to God, and the Spirit speaks not just through by inspiring Scripture, but by illuminating our minds. And look five is just as important because the Scriptures are there not to inform our minds, but to transform our hearts. So for all the time that you spend thinking about what the text means... Spend just as much, if not more, time thinking about how you must live in light of it and its truths. I think for me, the thing I want you to take away, what we've described sounds like a lot of hard work. But actually, I'm with Andrew. I don't actually do the five looks anymore. That They just happen automatically. So your goal is to establish a habit of loving God's word, of reading deeply, of learning how to look below the text. It's a habitual thing. So we give you the five looks. It's a means to develop a habit that allows you to love the word of God, to enjoy it, to relish it, and to grow through it. So don't look at the work. Look at it as habit forming. You, I don't know, if you start an exercise program, the first time you go for that 5K run, you do 1K and you die. So then you go for the next 5K run and you might do 1.1K and then die. But over time, you can do 5K if you persist. So the key is to take what we've got. Don't think you'll do it perfectly the first time. But eventually, you'll find that you just do it automatically and the richness, it's gold. That was... I don't do 10 words or less. That was more than 20, though. Sorry. Um, learn from Jonah. He's accepted... Jonah has accepted the privileges of being God's uh, person, but not the responsibilities. And that's a great thing to learn from him not to do. Okay, so if you're going to accept the if you're going to accept the privileges, accept the responsibilities. Why don't we give them a hand as they take a seat?